Have you ever had the experience of your being angry, but then having that anger kind of just evaporate as soon as you knew the person you were mad at understood how they screwed up? Right? Sometimes somebody will do something inconsiderate or hurtful, not something huge, but something that bugs you. And it bugs you more and more each time you think about it until you get yourself ready to give them a piece of your mind. And usually you analyze the offense, maybe with some help from your friends or anonymous internet forums or whatever you use, because you've got to make sure you're totally right and they're totally wrong. And then you'll imagine how it is you're going to explain this to them, oftentimes in the shower or where you're driving, and you, know, you kind of you play this out. And then you meet the person, and they ruin it, right? They ruin it because they come up and they'll say something like, oh, you know, I was thinking about what I said at coffee last week, and I realized that was pretty insensitive, and I'm really sorry about that. Could you forgive me? Or, or they say, oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot to pay that money back that I owed you, and I said I would give that back. I'm, I'm really embarrassed. Like, here, yeah, I've got it here right, right now for you. Sorry about that. And then all that preparation, it just goes out the window because um, you're ready for things to be right with them. It's such a waste of good stewing. But that's what can happen when you believe that they get it, that they understand where they went wrong, and when, and when they've owned that thing by confessing and trying to make that right. And it may not mean that there's no leftover hurt. You know, it doesn't necessarily fix everything, but the worst of the anger and the uncertainty can just go right out the window when you know that, yes, there can be reconciliation here. I don't know if you can remember a time like that where you just kind of breathe that sigh of relief because somebody, you knew they got it and they owned it, whatever it was. Because it lifts this great burden uh, because there's just not much that can be done to make things better until that happens. Broken relationships stay broken when somebody either doesn't get it or won't own it. And in my examples, I chose some types of conflict that are relatively small and easier to address. And they're certainly not all like that. And the one we're exploring today through the story of Joseph, well, the hurt and betrayal of that is as serious as it could possibly get. So as we go through that Old Testament narrative, I'm going to focus on the concept of reconciliation and what it might say to us about managing the risks that come with it and carefully searching ourselves for what we need to, to get, what we need to own, both personally and corporately. So we've been away for a week from the theme for March, uh, thanks to the stomach bug that took me out hard last weekend. And so I, I'm very thankful to, to Robin, who so uh, ably filled the pulpit on short notice, to Pam and Allison and others who jumped in and filled it in different ways last week. And thanks also to our AV volunteers, because I actually caught the live stream. It was the first time I just watched the live stream when I was supposed to be here. And it looked and sounded quite good. So they're, we're getting the hang of things back there. And so, But a quick reminder that through March, in conjunction with this season of Lent that we're in, we've been talking about these paired uh, spiritual disciplines of confession and self-examination. And these are the things we're supposed to be kind of learning and focusing on and hopefully practicing even this month. And so like a spiritual MRI of sorts, self-examination is about receiving God's help and recognizing where things are wrong at the level of our souls. Sin we might be blind to, but which it holds us back or it, it brings harm to the relationships we're in. And once we're able to see where we've missed the mark, then we should confess. Confession is essential to Christian faith. I mean, really, it's how we begin that journey of faith in a way. Because with God's help, we come to recognize our sinful state, our need for God's grace. And in one way or another, we find a way to express to God, I see that I need you. 
I'm sorry for what I've done. Please help me. But from there, confession should be a regular practice for us as Christians. We grow and we mature when we recognize and name and confess sin regularly so that we can better avoid it, so that we can try to make it right where it's gone wrong, and in order to prevent greater harm from being done. So as 1 John 1, 8 to 10 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So now that we're just caught up on that a bit, I'll, I'll get into this, the Old Testament story of Joseph. And it's one of the longest accounts in the Bible, so I'm going to summarize a bunch of it as quickly as I can, but I, we do need a sense of those details along the way for this teaching to all come together. So, as Dave mentioned a little bit, Joseph the, was the youngest son, at least at the beginning of this story, the youngest son of the patriarch Jacob, the only son of Jacob's favored wife, Rachel, and he was Joseph's or favorite. Or Jake, Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And Jacob made that super obvious in a way that was not fun for his brothers. And his brothers began to resent Joseph, and Joseph told, even would tell his brothers about, you know, oh, I had this dream where, you know, you were all bowing down to me. And either jo teenage Joseph was either pretty clueless or a bit of a brat, but that does not excuse his brothers from plotting to murder him. So they made their plan. They said, we're going to kill him out in the wilderness. But then when they got a hold of him, Joseph's oldest brother, Reuben, said, well, let's, let's you know, toss him in this well. No need to get our hands all bloody here. And he was thinking, I'll wait till my brothers calm down. I'll come back for him later. Like, we can, we can get out of this with everybody alive. But while Reuben was gone, another one of the brothers, who's Judah, came up with this great idea because this, this caravan came by and he said, well, no one has to die here and we can get paid. Let's sell him. And so they sold him as a slave, one of their own family, to a, slave of, uh, a caravan of foreigners. And Reuben was not happy, but he went along with the plan to tell their father that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal in the wilderness. So they, they ripped up his coat, they poured some goat's blood on it, they brought it back, and Jacob was inconsolable. After that, you can read through in Genesis to know all the ups and downs of the dramatic reversals uh, in Joseph's life, but the circumstances lead to him becoming Egypt's vizier, the most powerful official apart from Pharaoh, and the guy in control of all of the grain during a horrible famine. And so Joseph's family runs out of food. They traveled the, All his older brothers travel to Egypt, where Joseph sees them and recognizes them, but decked out as an Egyptian ruler, they have no idea who he is. And that's where we get to the part I'm going to focus in on today, because Joseph puts his family through quite a bit, but for a good reason. The first thing that happens is Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. He puts them in jail for three days. And when he's questioning them, Joseph learns that he actually has another brother, Benjamin, a younger brother born to his mother, Rachel, after Joseph had been sold into slavery. And so Joseph then tells his brothers, he lets them out of jail and he says, you can prove that you're not spies, that you're honest men, if you go back home and bring this brother you claim you have back here. So the brothers, and he keeps one of, the, one of his brothers named Simeon in Egypt as a hostage at this point to try to get them to come back. So the brothers go back to Jacob and they say, we, we, we kind of have to go back or Simeon's trapped in jail forever. But Jacob says, no, I'm not sending Benjamin. I'm not losing my youngest again. This will not happen. 
And so they wait, and the food gets eaten, and it, they get hungrier, and it's starting to, you know, they're, run, they're running out, and now there's not really much choice to go. But it's, it's now Judah who convinces his father, and he says, I promise you, I promise you, I will not let anything happen to Benjamin. So they return to Egypt. They meet Joseph, and he receives them very warmly. They have a fancy meal together. He dotes on Benjamin. And then when it's time for them to leave Egypt with their grain, Joseph arranges for his special silver cup to be placed in Benjamin's grain sack. And then when they were almost out of town, uh, Joseph's guards come running in. And they, they say, we're, we're searching you know, for the vizier's silver cup, and we're going to check all your bags. And they find it in Benjamin's bag. And you can maybe appreciate the horror that all of the other brothers have at that moment. And Joseph says, well, I'm going to be, when they bring him back to Joseph, he says, well, I'll be fair about this. You know, only the one who stole the cup has to be punished for it. So Benjamin stays here for his crime. And that's where we catch up to today's scripture reading. And, you know, it takes a, took a minute, I know, but that was seven chapters of Genesis all at once, so it's not bad. And when we, what Dave read earlier from Genesis 44 is Judah's reaction to this plan to lock up Benjamin. Judah, who promised his father that he would not come home without the boy. And so he pleads with Joseph. He tells the story of how they got to this place, what this would do to his father, Jacob. And Judah begs Joseph to let him trade places. He says, look, I will be willing to be your slave for the rest of my life if you will let my brother go home. And when I've read Joseph's story in the past, I kind of thought that Joseph was toying with his brothers a bit. Maybe he's enjoying turning the tables on them a little as he tries to decide between forgiveness and vengeance. But now I think that there's actually a lot more to it than that. Joseph is not messing with them because he can. In fact, he is testing them because he badly wants to know if there can be reconciliation between them. Because you can forgive somebody without reconciling. Right? Forgiveness is choosing to stop hating someone. It's no longer carrying a burden of anger or bitterness around because of what they've done. It's, it's really an act of freeing yourself. And you can forgive somebody who has disappeared, someone who has died, someone who wants nothing to do with you. They don't have to participate. But to reconcile, they do. It means restoring a relationship or bringing it back to a healthier state. And that's not always possible because it requires everyone involved to want to reconcile. But more than that, it also requires that whoever damaged the relationship first understands and regrets what they've done. There has to be a willingness to restart the relationship on new terms. You can't reconcile with someone who is blind to the harm that they've done or who is unwilling to do anything differently. They have to get it and they have to own it or there is no way forward. And I think this is what Joseph was after when he puts his brothers through these tests, they were actually, I think, planned very carefully. When Joseph lets everyone but Simeon go home, tells them to bring Benjamin back, his brothers actually start talking to themselves, among themselves in front of Joseph. They don't realize, of course, that he can understand them. They're not speaking Egyptian. And they're talking about how they know it's their cruelty to Joseph that's causing them this distress. Many years later, it's clear that they still vividly remember how Joseph pleaded with them not to hurt him, not to sell him, and how they, they went ahead with it anyway. They know this is their fault. And so they've been carrying that guilt and that recognition, and Joseph needed to hear that. He needed to put pressure on them to understand if they got it. 
And then when they come back and Joseph throws a banquet, he gave Benjamin five times as much food to feast on as the others. And I guess that could be just because he's really excited to meet his baby brother, but I have to wonder if this is to see if his brothers are going to react to Benjamin getting treated better than them the same way they reacted to Joseph being treated better than them. Is ben- Benjamin is clearly the new favorite, but how do his brothers really feel about that? And then Joseph forced them into a choice, of course, by threatening to imprison Benjamin and send the rest home without him. Would they leave him, which would almost certainly kill their father, Jacob, or would they fight for him? Would they try everything to prevent that? And it's significant that Judah is the one who steps forward and offers to be a slave because it was him who had the bright idea to sell Joseph as a slave. And so when Judah offers to trade himself, For Benjamin, Joseph was suddenly too moved to keep up the charade any longer, and he started to weep. And he told them who he was, which, of course, terrified his brothers. And he said to them, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me ruler of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region near me. I will provide for you there. See, I think Joseph had already forgiven his brothers. I think that had happened long before he saw them there in Egypt and recognized them. He believed that God's good plan was being carried out to save many lives. And so I believe what Joseph wanted deeply was to then reconcile with his family. But what they had done to him was extraordinarily evil. I mean, human trafficking of a family member, no less, was just as serious a thing, if not more, by their standards as it is by ours today. And so Joseph needed to know, do they get it? Do they really understand how much pain and suffering that they have caused for Joseph, for Jacob, for this whole family? Were they willing to own it? Could they admit what they had done was wrong, that they deserved punishment? Were they willing to take costly action to make things right? And through Joseph's carefully constructed tests, the answer, thankfully, came back, yes. Now, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of others, but I have, I have three kind of points of application that flow out of this as we live our modern Canadian Christian lives with, with I hope, a desire to be increasingly Christ-like people. And the first point of application here is just addressing the reality that reconciliation is risky and it's not easily accomplished. The conditions need to be right, which is what Joseph was so relentless about determining. Seeing a relationship restored is an incredibly good thing. It's worth a certain amount of risk when one is strong enough to take it. We see that God values the restoration of relationships so highly. I mean, really, the Bible is itself A story of reconciliation between humanity and God, which is accomplished at great cost. But in our sin-clouded world, reconciliation does not always proceed as we would like, even among believers. And there's less basis for it between those who have no shared bond of faith, no mutual expectation of love and grace. You can't reconcile with someone who doesn't get it or won't own it. Lots of people have a parent or a sibling or a child or an old friend or a boss or an ex or some other relationship where there is deep brokenness. If you could bring yourself 
to a place of sufficient grace and strength to consider reconciling with someone, well, they would also need to want that. And even just wanting it is not enough unless they have some understanding of the impact they had on you and the hurt that they caused. Reconciliation is not going to be possible. They'll continue to cause the same harm. Now, this is a huge topic on its own. It's connected to issues of trauma and mental health and and many others. And so we can't dig as deeply into it right here and right now. But I will say that this is one thing the story of Joseph tells us, that we should be careful in proceeding in reconciliation, especially when abuse or serious harm has been done. And if we're in the situation where we're the ones who perhaps are more the cause of, of that rift, if we're going to look to want to reconcile with someone who is now willing, it underscores the importance of working hard in that process, of not just thinking it's enough to, to say a few words and move on. You know, moving on is not the right thing to tell someone uh, when, when there is a deep wound or deep hurt. The second point of application I want to dig into here is that self-examination and confession are two kind of paired practices. These should be our common practice, even when we're not at the heart of some big conflict, even if, even if we're only a little bit wrong about something. You know, Joseph's oldest brothers really bore the greatest responsibility for what was done to him. They had the greatest influence over what happened. But that doesn't mean the younger brothers weren't involved. They needed to reconcile as well, even if the conditions weren't exactly the same. And I came across an example of a little bit about what I mean in this uh, here. It was, when it was related to, I don't know how many people followed the work of Anthony uh, Bourdain. He was a chef and a world traveler. He had these you know, cooking and travel shows. And he passed away a few years ago. But he was giving an interview and reflecting on some women he, he knew who had publicly told their stories of sexual harassment and abuse. And rather than patting himself on the back for not being one of the famous men who was being exposed, he embarked on some self-reflection. He said, what is wrong with me? I've known women who've had stories like this for years. They have never said anything to me. What have I, how have I presented myself in such a way as not to give confidence? Or why was I not the sort of person they would see as a natural ally here? So I started looking at that, he said. And that that quote just struck, struck me. It stuck with me because it reminds us that the point is not just to figure out when we've done something super wrong and admit it. We should do that. We should try to own it and get it in that arena. But it also applies to situations where we are 10% wrong, where we are not technically wrong at all, but still missing an opportunity to do good. Was there a way to be more loving in that? Did I miss something that I should have caught in my busyness, in my being focused elsewhere, in my own problems taking precedence? Because the thing is that not one of us is getting it all the time. We are always missing things. We're connected to situations we could be improving, but we don't always have the awareness of what we could or should do. And God invites us into self-reflection to grow our awareness of this, to show the reality of what is going on around us and how we could respond to it. And that, that is a never-ending work. It's not like we arrive at that. Certainly not that I ever expect to, to have that all figured out. But, but God's invitation is to keep making those, those strides. And often what comes with that is more grace and more compassion for other people, those people who disappoint you or frustrate you. 
people who are often also simply missing things, maybe different things than you naturally tend to miss. Often we use that word reconciliation to talk about reviving a destroyed or seriously damaged relationship, but it doesn't have to be like that. Reconciliation actually works a lot better if it is ongoing, if it's something that happens through a series of small corrections, God helping us. My third point of application here is, it's really an extension of the second, which is that there are many large-scale issues that deserve our effort to try to get it more than perhaps we are offering. As Canadian Baptists, we've been seeking to be more attentive in particular to racial reconciliation. Anti-black racism is a part of our history, right? The reason we have traditionally black churches who belong to their own separate association in our larger denominational family to this day is because white Baptists did not want to associate with them at one time and force them to be separate. A lack of their their distinctiveness today is a, a positive thing in, in many ways. I'm not saying it's bad that they are currently separate. There's a, lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of distinctiveness that enriches the family now, but we look at how that started. Shouldn't have begun that way, really. A lack of concern for justice with respect to Indigenous peoples is also part of our history, something Canadian Baptists only recently apologized for in trying to own that. And so reconciliation in these areas is not only possible, step by step I see it happening, and I give thanks for that. But it is happening slowly. There is a strong impulse to drag our feet rather than put in that effort to truly get it by learning the stories and studying the history and coming to appreciate why it is that the past is not just the past, but something with ripple effects that continue to cause harm today. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, not to mention our fellow citizens, are paying attention to who is willing to get it and own it, and who has decided that it is not worth their time and effort. Our God who made all peoples in his image and sees and mourns when we fail to grapple with what love requires of us is also watching. So reconciliation is risky. It requires a willing partner. Reconciliation is more than damage control. It is an ongoing means of mending and strengthening relationships. And reconciliation among groups of people matters, just like reconciliation between individuals does. Self-examination and confession are essential ingredients to the good that God can do in these things. All right, we're going to head in for a landing here shortly. I don't know if you like crime dramas on TV or any of those CSI-type shows, but if you've watched one or two of those, you know that you know, in pretty much any episode that happens, you're going to get a scene in an interrogation room, right? The investigators are going to try to convince the suspect that they know exactly what happened and they have the evidence they need and that person should just make it easier on everybody and confess. Sometimes they do confess, often they don't, hoping that they're going to get away with it somehow. And as I was thinking about some of what I just brought to you, I kind of pictured this scene over again and imagined what happens if God is in there as the interrogator. And when I picture that, you know, God is not angry. He does not pound the table. He does not try to trick anybody. But God is looking for a confession. Not because the confession is needed for justice to be done. God ensures that justice gets done. And let that be either a reassurance or a warning. But no, the confession is so that reconciliation can take place. So as so long as the person refuses to recognize and acknowledge what they've done wrong, they will not accept or receive God's forgiveness and grace. 
And so the relationship with that, between them and God will remain broken. But we know that God has gone to great lengths to invite people into a restored relationship with him. He doesn't want the confession in order to punish the person. He wants it so he can free them. This is why Jesus came among us, why he gave his life for us, why he is present and active in our midst and in our world today. And Jesus taught us this when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. God invites us to be reconciled, first and foremost, to him. And when that relationship is healthy, it benefits all of our other relationships as well. Self-examination and confession are practices that help us reconcile with God and with others maybe in a small but meaningful way, as we get and as we own things that we've done, or maybe even in dramatic and miraculous ways, because we have a Savior who can even bring life out of death. With him, all things are possible. Just join me for our moment of, of prayer and invite him to speak into our hearts through this. Loving God, there was a lot to absorb just in that story by a story from your word and for some of these reflections on it. But I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you will direct the right parts to the right people. That if we need to be reconciled with you, either because we don't feel like you want us or we are afraid to admit the state that we're in, God, that you would remove those barriers and show your love and grace to those who need to experience it so that they can come to you, so that they can ask to see where things have gone wrong, receive your grace to start again and live the eternal life that you have offered us starting now. Lord Jesus, think also of those who are experiencing the pain of brokenness in relationships with other people. Maybe they have a willing to reconcile, but the other person does not, and they're stuck until that changes. God, be in that situation. Allow a breakthrough to take place so that in safety and love, there can be healing. Or God, maybe there are people wrestling with damage that they have done and still aren't exactly sure how to respond or how to find the, the courage to address it. And I pray that you would open a door there as well, that you would make a way for a better version of, of that relationship to grow out of where things are today among family, among friends, God, wherever it is to be found, that you would be that, be that healer and that you would allow just an abundance of, of grace to make possible what doesn't seem possible. We thank you that you would let nothing stop you from inviting us to return to relationship with you, that you would go to the cross, Lord Jesus, that you would take up your life again, that 
you open that door for us and invite us to, to walk through and be yours. Lord God, make us grateful for these things and good examples of those who follow, someone who would do something like that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.